0: So we're, we're in John 11, verse uh, 38. And I, I might I might start reading just a little bit earlier than that to give us a bit of context. Because we've spent uh, probably the last month or so looking at this raising of Lazarus. Just a monumental story here in the Gospel of John. And it is the, the midpoint of the Gospel of John. And it also happens to be the final week of Jesus' life from this point on. That'll tell you a little something about the significance of the death of Jesus. That in most of the Gospels, it takes up about a third to a half of all the real estate on those on those parchments. But here we go. We're in we're in chapter 11. And early on, we, we have this little mention from Jesus. And in, in verse three, it says the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. That seems like a non sequitur, non-starter, doesn't it? He loved Lazarus. Therefore, he didn't go. He stayed put for two days. It would make more sense, right? He loved Lazarus, and so he mounted up right then and there. Let's go back into Judea, even though they want to kill me there. Let's go. I love Lazarus. We got to get there while he's still ill. But but instead it's he loved Lazarus and so he didn't go anywhere for 2 days. And Lazarus died. And it's uh Quite a a difficulty in some ways to, to wrestle with that. And there'll be some hard questions that we wrestle with even today as we make sense of pain and death and suffering and illness and dying and calamity. And we do so before a God that is in charge of all those things, but a God who loves us as well. So I'm going to fast forward. We've again, if you've been here with us, we've we've been studying through this text and we've made our way through a lot of this. But I'm going to jump down to verse uh, 28. After she said this, both Martha and Mary have come to Jesus saying, you know what, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would have lived because, you know, you got power. So after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and asking for you. my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That long phrase, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, is just one word in the original language, but the NIV is trying to, I don't know, make sense of it, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Anyway, he, he had this response, which the NIV calls deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved. And that's that same word that I just mentioned earlier. Came to the tomb. Deeply moved. It was a cave. With a stone laid across the entrance, take away the stone," he said. "But Lord," said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. The, the the Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians did. They they simply had uh, aromatic spices to cover up the bodily decomposition odors that, that came from that. The Jews actually had a system by which the uh, once the bones were left, they would then kind of take them and then reposition them in, a, in another ossuary, they, they would call it. But th- that's a side point. Um, just to know that because they did not embalm, what they would encounter after four days would have been rather horrific because of bodily decomposition. So again... But Lord, the sister of the dead man said, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And thus we have this intentionality on Jesus' part to do the miracle, but to do it as a sign. And in the Gospel of John, the Gospel is arranged around seven signs that are meant to induce faith, belief. This being the pinnacle of them all. It doesn't get bigger than this. This is not curing blindness. This is not... Curing illness. This is curing death. Death after four days. When he, when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice. This, this loud voice is, again, this scene, the, the, the level of emotion, clamor, and volume and decibels in this scene, if we could imagine it, is probably Twice what any of us could imagine. If if you've been at at a funeral. Where it is just a horrifically devastation. And there is loud cries and wailing. It's all of that. That's constantly going on here. And then some. But then on top of that. When Jesus begins to speak. He's having to take his voice. And bring it above all of that. There is nothing serene. There is nothing sober or reflective in this funeral scene, by the way. Think of it just being as as loud as you can imagine. And the word that says here, when Jesus is about to say these words in a loud voice, the only other times that phrase is used is when the crowds in a a victory parade scream at the top of their voices in the next chapter, Hosanna! 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 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? It's the raucous crowd of celebration. And then here are the only other times it's used besides that. It's when the crowds begin to chant as loud as they can. When given the choice, should Jesus be crucified or should Barabbas be crucified? And as the crowds scream out, not this man, but Barabbas. Right after that, The next time the word is used is when the crowds begin to chant in loud unison, crucify him, crucify him. The next time is in chapter 19 where they scream away with him, crucify him, away with him, crucify him. So this is the tenor of now Jesus raising above the crowds. Interestingly, by saying what he's about to say, he sets in motion all that they will scream. Because he's not stupid. He knows that if he performs such a miracle, it's not going to go unnoticed. And the Jewish leaders are going to have to make a response. And that response will result in all the next loud cries. But this loud cry... Again, above the cacophony, above the din, Lazarus, come out with force. The dead man came out. Imagine being there. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And thus, this definitive miracle has just drawn the battle lines that will result in this final week of Jesus's life but before we get into that I want to take a look at two very important things because a lot of times when you have such a I I would have to say confusion of why the love but yet why the waiting Mm -hmm. what's going on here with all of that And my my first point is if you guys don't mind advancing that my first point is see how he loves but see how he loves is my first point but it comes from the, the very thing that they all said about Jesus in verse 36 they saw Jesus weeping there with Mary, Martha all of the close friends of Lazarus And when he comes up close to the tomb, right there in the middle of the funeral, in the middle of the tomb, well, not in the tomb itself, but but right in front of that tomb, Jesus breaks down and sobs deeply. And the crowd comes so close to saying something so precisely right. The crowd say, see how he loved him. But they got it a good bit off. Because it's not see how he loved him. Because it's not past tense. Jesus is not done loving Lazarus. Jesus loves Lazarus. But also, think about this too. If you're Jesus, and in in just a couple more sentences, you're going to bring Lazarus out of the tomb. What? What, it doesn't seem like there's a bit of a disconnect to, to weeping. Like, I, I would think it would be more like, <laughs> you're all crying right now, but check this out. Like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like just, just hold on a sec. Where do you see what I'm able to do? In just a moment here. I think there would almost be a, even a, a heightened enthusiasm for what it is that he's going to do to take this funeral and turn it into a feast. But he actually, nonetheless, in that moment, does weep. And I I think because, for Jesus, this is much more than just Lazarus that is in view here. This is all that have died. All that have gone against the design of God. God's design, when you look at as he made all things in Genesis 1 and 2... His design did not include death. His design didn't include blindness, disease, illness, natural calamity. His design didn't include any of that. And yet here, Jesus empties himself of his divinity, comes to earth as man, and here in compassion and in empathy with with his fellow men, as he spends this time with them all, and the love of God being poured out among them all, I think that the reason that he's weeping is because he sees not just Lazarus, but even you, one day, having to be uh, overwhelmed by death itself, all of your loved ones who have been overwhelmed by death itself. And maybe you've never had the devastation of someone really close to you dying. Maybe you've never had the experience of sobbing to a point of losing all control at the side of a casket. But you will. Every one of us here will. That'll either be Me for Deb, or Deb for me. And in that moment, I need to keep this in front of me. See how he loves her. Or for her, see how he loves him. And to know that this is not Jesus' design. This is not God's design. And as John has put together this gospel, is to also recognize this is not the plan of God. And this is not the way that people are now to make sense of the sovereignty of God. As though God doesn't have an end game in store. John's gospel is not some haphazard curation of events in Jesus's life. John's gospel is rather deliberately crafted to help us to see that the coming of Jesus is so broad in its scope of solution that we should stand in awe at the brilliance of God's plan. Now, it's it's interesting that Jesus here is sending a message that I am sovereign over death, he is saying, and that I have a plan that will overcome even the worst of the devastations of the fall. It was not this way in the original creation. And it will not be this way in the recreation. And it's interesting that there are seven signs, and that has not escaped the notice, of Christians reading the Gospel of John for 2,000 years. And one of the recognitions is in those seven signs, we have an eighth sign. And that is the resurrection of Jesus himself. Pointing to the idea that now we're into the next week. Now we're into the new creation. But before that new creation comes... He doesn't want to leave undealt with all that has been experienced in devastation in the first creation after the fall. And so the signs include overcoming shame at the wedding of Cana. Jesus intentionally disrupts an event that would have caused shame upon that family for their poor planning. At such an important occasion as a wedding and to run out of some of the necessary form of hospitality like wine. And instead makes it the greatest wine and in a moment of honor. So again, the shame that that may be part of our lives. That's not God's plan. And know that God's got a plan for it. And he is executing that plan before our eyes in this gospel. Grief is not part of God's plan. The second of the miraculous signs that John says that happened in Bethsaida was the, I'm sorry, that happened in Capernaum was the healing of the official's son. The official is just a foreigner, a a Roman, not even a, a Jew, but to send a sign of the broad sweeping attack that he will have on grief. The grief that is not meant to be part of God's design is the second miraculous sign. The third is disease and debilitation itself. As at the pool of Bethsaida, the man who could not walk is radically healed. Again, to say, not our design, not the design of God. And it won't be in the age to come. And then hunger, the great blight of hunger, is reversed in the feeding of the 5,000. Natural disaster, as the winds begin to pick up and swamp the boat, as the, the raging storm is about to cause devastation on the disciples in the boat, Jesus shows that he is sovereign over that, walks on the water, and rebukes the wind and the waves. To bring it under his sovereign control. Blindness. Prejudice. All that is reversed. As we read about in John chapter 9. All the prejudices of blame. That goes on. He's born blind because he sinned. Because his parents sinned. All of that blaming. And prejudice. And blindness. And pride. Is attacked. And then finally. Death itself. Right here. There is a love that Jesus has that extends over with compassion to every moment of shame that you've experienced, to blindness perhaps that you've engaged in, in pride, a heart that aches deeper than we can begin to imagine in Christ, as he thinks about the debilitations, the hungers, the devastations that have affected them then, you now. God cares extremely deeply. He is a God who doesn't just issue concerns from on high, but empties himself from on high to enter into this devastation with you, with us. And it's not all. By saying, Lazarus, come out, he's also recognizing that the only way for that to happen is for him to go in. And as he goes to the cross, which is the inexorable result of this situation, as he goes to the cross, he will bear all the shame, all the grief, all the disability, all the emotional discouragement, all the mental illness. He will bear all illness. He will bear all that was affected in the fall, in his body, on the cross, so that all of it, all of it, can be taken from us, put upon him, so that we can have a real hope in an age to come. He is issuing right here, through his death, burial, and resurrection, the guarantee that all of this is but a mist, all of this is but a shadow, And what is to come is so beautiful and glorious and wonderful and permanent, but can only come in justly by Him bringing this intercession. And so as you look at Him weeping at the tomb, and you think, wow, that's a tender moment for Jesus. Realize that He's weeping for you. He cares for you. He loves you. And one of the biggest kind of psychological um, devastations. so oh, you keep using that word today, of, of, of our current age, is a feeling of self-worth that has been emptied from individuals. And there have been a lot of solutions of how can you come to a place of self-worth? And certainly it's not try to get it from other people. Because in a fickle, honor-shame society, the Visitudes of of people's approval or disapproval will come and they'll go and and you'll you'll be on a pendulum and your your life will be a wreck. So instead, the advice goes, just love yourself. I think many have tried that and realized that doesn't get you there either. It's not bad advice, but it's not best advice. Because you can't just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's no leverage there for, for for yourself to be lifted. To have leverage, you need an outside position to gain leverage. It's Archimedes, the Greek mathematician, uh who, who said, Give me a place to stand and a lever or lever long enough and I shall move the world. Well, I think with Jesus in store here, we could, we could probably say, give him a foundation of truth on which to stand and a love sure enough, and he will move my soul. He will lift my soul. If you really want to know your worth, don't look to others. Don't try to only manufacture it from within. When there's something that is already in place, That is so much more powerful, has so much more leverage, and it's Jesus looking at you and sobbing uncontrollably because he loves you so dearly. And he wants nothing more than for you to no longer be affected by the fallenness of sin in your own life, the enslavement of sin in your own life, and to be lifted and leveraged. By his love that is outside of you and is as objective and considers you and lifts you. But in order to be lifted by his love, you're you're going to have to recognize that the only real value for your soul, for your self-worth, is is not that little romantic liaison, is is not that escapism into a video game that makes you feel like a hero. It's not any of those things. There's something much, much more powerful, and that's this Jesus right here, ready to raise you, ready to raise you with this level of love. But love is not just the only thing that is in view here, which is helpful, because we have before us, not just a doubled over, weeping Jesus, we have a Jesus ready to go to battle, ready to go to battle for you, for Lazarus, for everybody that's here. And my second point is, see how he fumes. And that's where this, this word comes into play. Look in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Translators have been deeply disturbed and troubled by this word throughout the centuries. It's, it's one of those kind of four, five, six, very contentious translation words in our New Testament. And I'm not in the business of trying to make you like wonder, am I, is what I'm reading right or not? This is just so famous that, that often the translations are, are a bit different in this one. And it's difficult to capture the full spirit of this word, because I I think it's the case that some have been afraid to show Jesus as just the fury unleashed that he is in this moment. And that is the essence of that word. It's the word used of a beast that has unbridled anger being unleashed in the moment. It's the it's the, the the sound of a of a snarling wolf before an attack. Uh, it, it would be used in common Greek at, at the time for 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 that level of primal rage that is happening here. Uh, the word is my It's it's used a couple other times in our New Testament. One of the other times, it's it's used in a very negative sense, and there it's kind of brought that way. In Mark 14, 5, we have the story of. The woman anointing Jesus' feet uh, with an expensive perfume. And there are critics surrounding her that are critical of the fact that she would waste so much money on on Jesus. Maybe it's his head uh, in in that story that that she's anointing. And the, the, the sound of their rebuke of her, where it's translated different ways. They scolded her. They rebuked her. They reviled her. Is, is the word that's used there? It's the same word that's here, but it was often the word that was used for this sense of a snarling, seething, smoldering anger of a beast. It was often used of animals, snorting, rah, just that's coming at it. And if that's the case, and you know, people are looking at Jesus and saying, You mad, bro? <laughs> well, what's he mad at? What is he mad at? In this situation is he is he mad at their unbelief it, it doesn't doesn't seem like that's the case in the context here is he mad that he waited and, and Lazarus died well I don't I don't think that's the case either here I mean he, this is very deliberate he, he wants this to be the moment of, of of real belief for for so many and the moment of division as well apparently that's going on here I don't know. Is he, is he mad at himself? Is he mad at the crowds? Is he mad at Mary and Martha for kind of having slightly odd questions for him? What is it that he's mad at? And the one thing that many have settled on, and, and I think this is right, he's mad at death. He's mad at sin. He's mad at the enemy, at the deceiver. Who has introduced death, and sin, and disease, and grief, and shame, and has unleashed all of that calamity into the beauty of His creation. Imagine, imagine if you had created, let's say, so when I was in, in high school, I was very much into art. And let's say with, you know, all of the different kind of watercolors that I finally, you know, watercolor is a fickle medium and it's difficult sometimes to get things to do what you, in your mind's eye, it does. But let's say I nail it and it is the pinnacle, the masterpiece of all my magnus opus, the the greatest watercolor, nailed it. The emotions, the technique, the colors, the composition, it's all there in this beautiful watercolor. And I I give it to my brother, because I love him so dearly. My brother Michael. Some of you know him. And maybe you know where the story's going then. And let's say he takes that to the bathroom and uses it for toilet paper. How would you feel? Not that he would do that. This is illustrative purposes only. But it's not even a fair enough analogy for how you're viewed as God's pinnacle of creation. You are his masterpiece. He looks at you and says, not only are you good at that point in creation, he says, you are very good. And for all of that to then turn on him in rebellion, for for, for the ultimate of all of his creation to be destroyed right before his eyes, from the holiness and the sanctity and the obedience and the glory, purity of all that was created, and to turn it into something that is smeared with corruption and pollution. That's God, and that's God here. God, emptied of Himself, is still, with His same sensibilities, now seeing it up close and personal. And He's seeing the devastation, and He's ready to go to battle. And he is angry at what has happened to the intention of creation. He is angry at what has become of you and me and Lazarus and everyone. And he looks through, I believe, the corridors of time. And, and with the that, that anger still seething, with the, the loud cry, he is ready to change it all. Because the moment that he says, Lazarus, come out, then... He is basically saying, I'm going to battle. Because death is going to say back to him, You ready to go at this? Because if I give up Lazarus, something's coming back my way. And it's going to be Jesus. But Jesus is ready to go to battle for you. He is ready to go to the garden. To battle before God. That he will take Not just all your grief and shame and devastation and disappointment and disability. He's going to take something even more devastating as he goes to battle. He's going to take all your sin. Those other things he could bear. But to bear the corruption of my pride, to bear the toxic waste of my deceitful seductions over many years, to, to bear the absolute repulsion of, of, of my materialism he's going to have all of that, that that he's going to have to decide to take on but he does so ready to do battle because you're worth it because you're worth it and in order for Lazarus to come out he knows, he's not stupid he knows the result matter of fact it's going to happen in just the next verse they're going to plot his death The second he does this, the Jews are like, that's it. Gloves are off. This guy is way too provocative. We can't have this going on any longer. Let's put him to death. And from that moment on, they conspire. And within a week, he's dead. Within a week, he's hanging naked from a cross. In what they think is a victory over the love of Christ. Not realizing in death, in Satan, in his folly thinking that he could gain that victory not realizing that ain't no grave gonna hold his body down the, the folly of thinking that that he could take that Satan could take perfect love perfect obedience and take claim over it and to subsume it into death itself when it is incongruent with death it has no claim, no charter over perfect love. Death has no claim over perfect obedience. And, and as a result, spoiler alert, we'll read it in chapter 20, 21, Jesus will explode out of death. He will explode the effects of death and disease and destruction and sin itself for us to, to, to make that way. And, and, and for us... I think as we try to make sense of a fallen world right now, know that the Gospel of John makes that sense for you. But if you're to align yourself with such a love, with such an indignation, with such a hero that is ready to do battle for you, then then align yourself in this way. is Attack the same thing that Jesus has to attack for all of this to be reversed. And if we could just go to the final uh, slide of charge here. In the life to the full challenges, join Jesus in this attack by killing a chronic sin in your life. Killing something that has held you back. Killing something that has spoiled the intention of God's design for you. God's destiny, your destiny to which you've been reborn, is one of beauty and purity and obedience, and significance, and purposefulness, and fruitfulness, and joy. And if if that is not the reality right now, it's not going to come through sin. It's not going to come through compromise. It's only going to come through shedding that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. Why? He then answers it so that we might die to sin and live, live for righteousness. Jesus comes and disrupts so that we can have that wake-up call, so that we can hear Bama Dele Ovalana come out, so that we can know that that is not our lot, but that rather we have something transforming, in the love, and the rage, and the purpose, and the, and the heroism that Jesus exhibits here. Don't let it be for nothing. Align yourself with this love, with our God, in being able to shed off those things that have destroyed, and to go after this beautiful life to the full. Amen? amen. I think we have a closing song? Yes? Uh, amen.